Coming to you from the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains, Denver, Colorado, it's the Savage Cast, a Savage Worlds podcast brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Savages. Here are your hosts, Chris Savage Mommy Fox and Christopher Savage Bull Landauer. Savage Cast listeners, welcome to episode 32, 32, 32. We're getting up there. We talked a little bit about how we couldn't believe we were twenty one. Now we're thirty two. God, we're gonna get we're gonna be on pensions soon. We are. Hey, this is the Savage Mommy. I'm here with Dustin Hatchet. Howdy. And the Savage Bull. Yo. And a special guest, Bobby Evans from Lots of Stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you I'm mostly known from the GM Table YouTube channel, which is where we did uh, Let's Run Savage Worlds, which is now Savage Worlds for Beginners. I got a new game book coming out. I do the Swadecast podcast now. I own partial rights to the Drunk GM podcast. I do actual plays. I'm just way too busy. Yeah, I, I'm i not going to lie. I got into, like, I jumped in in the deep end because I got so sick of going on YouTube and seeing, like, so much different types of content for games like D&D. And I love those games, but when you search Savage Worlds, you'd find the occasional, like, talking head group type thing and reviews, and that was it. And I'm like, no, we need, we need like, more detailed reviews, we need education videos, we need all this, so I guess I'm doing it. Yeah, I like that. So um, let's start off with the question that we always like to ask uh, all of our guests. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to role-playing? How did you get involved with Savage Worlds? Just kind of give us a little uh, background. Uh, so what is your character background? So first of all, me personally, my background is film and writing. I went to school for film with a minor in English to be a scriptwriter. I did that for a bit. I kind of pissed off the wrong people, blacklisted myself in that industry. That's but, always fun. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think those people work anymore, but when you're told you're pitching a show to Fox and it turns out you're pitching to Disney and you start bad-mouthing Disney, it does not go well for well. I've heard so, interesting things about Disney. That's, a, that, that's an oopsie. <laughs> right? God damn it, the stupid oh, that, mouse house. That's it. That's its own funny thing because it was this weird situation. I was a freshman in college and they wanted to buy my show. Wow. And I was super psyched. And it was like this young adult show, but this was like 2005, back when they were still doing the whole child actor issues where like they'd have your parents sign a contract and you're locked into it till you're like 22. And I have issues with that. Because it's kind of like they didn't sign it in their past 18 and stuff. And I just went on this whole rant. And I'm like, oh, turns out I just got blacklisted by Disney. Cool. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. For, for as much but, as, as Disney owns. I mean, the, the, the creepy thing about Disney is that they're basically the single largest force behind what will and will not come into the public domain in, in America. I mean, their oh, yeah. brutal uh, protectionism over the Mouse House and Mickey, um, who used to be called Mortimer. Can you imagine – Oh, yeah. Mortimer Mouse. I mean, if we still had Mortimer, <laughs> um, really is what's is actually there, there's a, there's a, a noticeable gap in um, artistic productivity that's caused by Disney not just camping on their properties, but just preventing so many other different things from entering the public domain 
that um oh yeah if you research if you end up taking courses on copyright law or any of that stuff like i had to they basically have written the last what 50 years of copyright law yeah yeah it's i mean sunny sunny bono was like their bought and paid for guy when he was in there and he passed a bunch of um bunch of bunch of laws in their favor and they are spearheaded. Yeah. He didn't pass them alone, but yeah, pretty much. Yeah, if you're if you're in intellectual property law <laughs> and you don't know about Disney, you are probably not a very good intellectual property lawyer. Yeah, it means you probably didn't go to school at all. Anyways, uh, and then how I got into gaming is actually this weirdly funny story of I have a brother that's 11 years older than me, and when he went off to college, all of his crap got stored in my closet, and I found the old D and D red box in there. And like started reading it and playing it by myself. And he comes home from college and he calls me a nerd. And I have to point out, not only did I find this in his stuff, I found it in his box of vintage Transformers. <laughs> so those would be worth something now on eBay too. Oh yeah. And his first response to that was, you touched my Transformers. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, no, I've, I've been in the hobby since I was about 10 years old, <laughs> running games since I was like 17. Just loved it. I got in the Savage Worlds about six years ago. I believe, yeah, it was um RPG Geek, I think, kept doing reviews of Savage Worlds products. I'm like, you know, screw it. I'll get it. I got the $10 deluxe book, the core book at the time, and I fell in love with it. I was like, this is the game I've always wanted to run because I'm a very improvisational GM. Yeah, and that always helps. I mean, I, I think the, I mean, there, there are definitely t- uh, at least two kinds of GMs. Like one is the, I need to have it written. I need to know where this is going. I need to have dialogue already written for my characters. And then there's the, um, either by choice or by preference, uh, screw it, we're doing it live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm that weirdo that actually prefers to GM over playing. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm a control freak. Maybe it has something to do with that, but. I still play because if you don't play, you'll become an awful GM, I believe. But yeah, I'm that one that's like, no, I'll happily run a game. Yeah, I think that's legit. That's actually an interesting point that I haven't heard that brought up a lot before is um, there's in, in ratio of GM advice to player advice, it's probably 10 to 1 in favor of GM advice. And yet the GM's only one person at the table. And um, there's actually uh, over on the saving thread, we just talked to those guys, and so did you. We saw your video. Excellent interview with those guys. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but they have a show. I think Amy Vorpal um, does it about like player mm-hmm. advice, like how to be a better you know uh, RPG player. I'm like, you know, there's just not enough of that going around because – uh, it, it's really it's easy when you're um, to notice when you run a lot of con games. Where you literally have like three games a day and three different groups of people. How the exact same material run twice within three hours of each other can be entirely different based upon the mood of one or two people at a table of five or six. And uh, and so you know you see that a little more uh, transparently when it's like that up in your face. But overall, I mean, it, it is kind of funny. It is a social hobby, and we are like suffering from you know social stuff. Uh, and, and there's very little about the, out there like, hey, why don't you be a good player? And I think I agree with you. I think it's it, to be a good GM, you have to be on the other side of the table too. Well, one to just pick up, you know, good habits and good advice, but two to appreciate oh, yeah. like what the game master's decisions and how they affect player agency and that kind well, of stuff. Well, the amount too. of work, just the amount of work put yeah. in by a game master, right? Oh yeah, definitely. I I honest, I think the amount of work is why you see so much more content geared towards game masters, which is funny, but at the same time when you go and you see every single 
optimized build video and how to play a specific class and stuff. That's what people think is the content for players. And y'all admit, when I saw Amy Vorpal's new show, The How to Be a Player, I'm like, that's genius. How did I not think of this? Right. Well, here's a funny thing. So the, you know, cutting ahead a little bit about you, you're going to put out a couple of videos. You've announced them already about like um, uh, Savage World Suede 101, like, you know, introduction to Suede. Yeah. And Fox and I have been talking about doing this as a podcast for like two years now before Suede. We were going to do you know, Swex. And uh, it's just one of those things like it's, it's so obvious that it needs to be done. Like, why don't we do it in a very simple introductory thing where we just walk people through it and the you kind of run into the problem of like every good idea doesn't need to be done by you. <laughs> there is only yes. so many hours in the day, <laughs> and like oh that'd be a great idea. And it's like where are we going to fit this in? Like when do we have the time <laughs> to sit down and write a you know uh, introductory new player facing series of things? And like just when we're about to do the project, like Shane's like hey got a draft you guys want to look at some stuff and we're like oh, okay what's that about and then it's that was swayed i'm like oh okay well i guess we're not going to do that now <laughs> and yeah you know, no definitely right and so it's just like you know the the all of the good ideas it's like the, I, I as much as i think people feel competitive about other people who are in their same like niche i don't really think we're competing with each other in the sense of, of zero sum kind of competition uh, i need podcasts oh, to listen definitely. to too well, not just that. Some of the best advice I've gotten in entertainment kind of in general is the fact that you really shouldn't be comparing your content to try and be someone else's. That already exists. Someone else is already doing that. If you look at yourself of, I have to outdo this one person at what they're doing, you've already lost. Because even if you're better, you're already fighting a losing battle. You'd have to be so much better to do it. And it's way more work when you can just go, hey, why don't we work together, support each other? Nobody listens to just one podcast. Right. Yeah. I got to say, I know I have, uh, you know, probably 50 or 60 in my feed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and the, you know, well, and that's also the other interesting thing, too, is like it's kind of how you can build enough momentum to get a message out, too. Like, you know, if there's something important yeah. going on in the community, you almost need, you know, 80% of the main channels people get their, their messaging from to be saying the same thing before you really get any traction on it. And, uh, so yeah, if you're, if you're not allies with the other people who are doing the same thing you're doing, you all, you all just kind of, you know, float alone and, and, and are, are, uh, um, yeah, it's just not as, not as powerful overall. Um, and I mean, we don't, we don't need to have a unified message in Savage World. Like we're now, we're not like a, some political action committee or something, but it's just in general, I think the, the, um, like the fact that like there's a whole community now that's going to have to adapt to a new edition of, of Savage Worlds, and you know there's so many interesting people who are now stepping up and doing cool new things. Like the number of of, of uh, new um, like cheat sheets and player aids and um, applications that are going live now is really cool. Um, you know, like we just got to check out savage.us. I'm like, yeah, I mean, these are great little things that didn't exist before, but now that they're all, you know, the, the new edition is kind of bringing that out of the woodwork. And it's like, yeah, I would have loved to have programmed a new app. Uh, where's the time? You know, <laughs> like, yeah. you can't do everything. Oh, definitely. It's one of the things I love because anytime you deal with a new edition on any kind of game or something like this, or as a community, you're hitting this big reset button, which lowers the barrier of entry psychologically for people so much. It's when we're going to see the biggest expansion of Savage Worlds. For probably the next few years, it's this nice little burst for a new edition. 
Well, and to follow up with what you just said uh, perfectly is I, whenever I see a new edition of a game, the first thing I do is five years from now, are we still going to have the same amount of player base? Are people going to enjoy it? And that same amount of player base may not be the folks from the old edition, but when you get that turnover, does that turnover still keep the community alive? Does it still keep everyone playing the game? And uh, with this new edition of Savage Worlds, I completely can say yes. Five years from now, it's going to be as good as it is right before they release the new edition. Oh, I'm actually right there with you. And so many people actually call me weird when I'll, like, criticize something, maybe a business move or something, not just with Savage Worlds, because I was journaling for other RPG companies. But I'll be like, no, I'm not talking about right now. I'm talking about everything will have impacts. What will this do for the hobby five years from now, ten years from now? That's actually the mantra I tend to chant at people. Yeah, and there's there's one interesting thing there is, like, the you know uh, in one of my other hobbies I'm a, I wrote a very critical um, very large blog I mean it was like you know at least over half a million words or 1.2 million words I don't know it's depending on how you count but like a lot of content over several years and uh, as a harsh critic of what was going on and I thought that there were you know, ethical issues in that hobby and um, it's not a really secret it's it's, it's uh, um, confirmation and work dog breeding. And um, gotcha. a lot of stuff in that 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 whole kind of paradigm, which is very outdated, very Victorian, um, very uh, eugenics you know, oriented, and just a lot of just really stupid leftover culture. And so I was very critical against it. And the I think I had a place of being very critical because I wasn't in bed with anybody important. Right? Um, here's yeah. the, the the hard thing about. When you're in an industry like Fox and I are and everybody in Savage Worlds is everybody's so attainable and approachable. Like we know Shane, we've met Shane, we've met, you know, Clinton, Jody and Black and everybody else. Well, they're all friends. Yeah, they're all friends, right? And so then it's like, yeah. okay, how do you be critical and not be an asshole? Because I was totally an a-hole on the other kind of channel. I mean, it was no holds barred, just rants, screeds. And um <laughs> and I, I don't really have anything bad to say that much about Savage Worlds. Like I'm not really biting my tongue about anything, but it is interesting when you do get around to like, okay, is this a good decision or not? Um you know, but you know this person. You know that they're going to read it. They're, you know that they're going to see it. It's just like interesting. It's an interesting little conundrum of, of um, you know, being constructive, um, but also not being a bad person. <laughs> I mean, I totally get it, guys. Especially, it's so hard to try and come off and being a nice person. All this, especially in such a close knit community, because I was really worried about that when I did my Freedom Squadron review, because it's kind of scathing. Like, some people put it off as too mean, but I tried to do it as fair and with some humor as it is. And I've learned, and I did about three years in written reviews before I shifted to this medium and started growing out, that you can only do so much to try and not be an asshole, but some of it is also on the end of, can the other person take criticism? Oh, absolutely. So, it's an ebb and flow thing. And luckily, in Savage Worlds, for the most part, most of us seem to be able to take criticism pretty well. So at least we have that. Yeah, that is kind of the amazing thing. I think the, um, as a, I mean, this is good for you, you know, coming out with your own book and just looking at what, um, uh, how Pinnacle is chosen to take feedback over Suede. 
Uh, very impressive. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it's not something I think I, I've really seen any other communities do or producers do to the same degree. I mean, they, they could be out there, um, but the the amount of like you know, one, the book was very much ready to go when the Kickstarter was done, and it already been you know play tested. And a lot of people had already gotten their hands on it. But seeing the difference between you know, like Fox and I had a, an advanced review copy, and we had you know definitely gone over it, and all, and then seeing what other people found in there that we hadn't even considered yeah, things an issue. that were things I didn't even notice. Right? And then they became... I mean, not just that, the difference between the advanced review copy and what people think is version one. I had a copy of Alpha 2, so I get it. Oh, right, exactly. <laughs> right? And, and and just seeing just how much has changed. And the... Um, you know, I, I think the... Uh, people see a little bit of it in the new Chase Rules, where they published yeah. Chase Rules version, what everyone saw that was laid out and, and, and had art. And, uh, and then... Completely swapped that out with an entirely different paradigm, and then swapped it out again. Oh, and that was before the Kickstarter was even done, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. and then swapped it out again, and then swapped it out to what it is, right? I mean, it went to yeah. what two or three, three, maybe three or four different versions. Oh, easily, at least three. Yeah, with the Sleepy Hollow release, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that was wild. How even that one kind of chase mechanic adventure. Uh, went through three or four iterations. But I really appreciate that. Uh, I was at a trade show where uh, the lead playtester for uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition went through how they did all their playtesting this past 18 months and the online live playtest with thousands of people and how he aggregated that data and was trying to figure it all out. And to watch that process in real time during the Kickstarter was fascinating as well, but it also shows how wonderful of a community you are, whether it doesn't matter what game you play, we all want it to be the best experience for all of us. Oh yeah. Especially this idea and not taking anything away from how Shay and Clinton did it. Cause it's kind of amazing. I have some opinions on how they did their messaging at the beginning, which kind of created their own hurdles, but this also all goes all the way back to D and D next when wizards of the coast did a two year play test to create their new edition. Like this is just kind of the new way RPG seem to be going of we're going to make a game and then we're going to give it to people and we'll refine it as a community because it's, it's showing to create just much stronger products in the end. Yeah, you're, you're crowdsourcing, you're editing. Yeah. So I, I have a question for you. Kind of talk about uh, a couple of your shows. Um, yeah. I, I'm really very interested when you said earlier that the educational part of this that you weren't seeing out there um, for gaming. And so kind of talk about a little bit about Swadecast. And that's that's your educational show. Is that correct? No, 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 no. Our educational show is going to be Savage Worlds for Beginners, which we're in pre-production for right now. It was Let's Run Savage Worlds, but with the new edition, we kind of ended that and used it for a reboot. Okay. So tell tell people a little bit about that one, and then we'll talk about Swadecast. Okay, so Savage Worlds for Beginners, it's honestly, it's exactly the same as Let's Run Savage Worlds was. I'm just using a better name for analytics and all that behind the scenes stuff. But the thing is, is the big comparison I tend to do is stuff like D and D. If you don't know how to play D and D, you can go into YouTube and you can go, how do I play a warlock? And it'll give you just the information you need. You can go, Oh, I don't really understand just the hit dice mechanic. And you can find just that information you need. You don't need to sit through 
an hour, two-hour video that's giving a broad thing of everything. There's very specialized stuff. So with Savage Worlds for Beginners, we're going to start a little broad. Our first episode is actually going to be making your first character and have a slightly streamlined character creation for so you don't have to digest the whole book because Adventures Edition is huge with how many hindrances and stuff. And then we're going to go into like an episode just talking about the importance of hindrances and kind of highlighting some hindrances. Then just going into probably we'll probably do each type of edge as its own episode. And once we get that stuff out of the way, because that's kind of the beginning stuff, we'll be able to then have the room to do things like if you don't understand the chase rules, you can search Savage Worlds Chase and there'll be a video of just the content you're looking for. You don't have to sift through a really long video. You don't have to see a generic title and hope it's going to cover the thing you're looking for. It'll have right what you want. And that tends to be a lot more helpful for people to learn the game if there's one or two pieces they don't quite get. And how long are these going to be each? We're shooting for about 15 minutes. Okay. So just quick, real quick, digestible. You can watch yeah, two or three digestible. at a time. Some might, some might shift into around the half hour line, but I don't want to go over that. Like, that's going to be our max. The long-form stuff, that's what Swadecast is. That's where we're going to sit and, like, talk and have back and forth and stuff. Savage Rules for Beginners is going to be kind of like the Bill Nye for teaching game stuff. And, and, and do you have an idea when that's going to drop, the first one? Again, we're still in pre-production, so I'm not sure. But the first one, sh- uh, I'll say the first one should drop in June because I have cons in May. So I don't want to say May and cons end up throwing all my schedule. Right. Okay. We know nothing about cons getting in the way of your scheduling. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. suede cast, that's, that's kind of more the, the, the longer form discussions of, yeah, of the long form discussion rules. kind of podcast. Form. Okay. Yeah. And then we have drunk GM, which is a friend's actually running it, but I'm on it stuff. And that's where it's not mechanics based. It's more the esoteric things like, what is an RPG? How can we help role players come out of their shell? Stuff like that. Okay. Less system specific. And lots of drinking? Yes. <laughs> that always helps. It helps people get out. Know, it loosens the tongue. Yeah, that way, you know, drunk GM, yeah. you know, I want to I want to see uh I want to see some uh, drinking while you're doing the show. Yeah, uh Dan does tend to drink. Yeah, my buddy Dan Cook is the drunk GM. He used to run the Many Savage Worlds show. And then he, like, brand shifted to the drunk GM. Okay, yeah, I remember that show. Because he didn't really like where it was going. Yeah, it's the same guy. And now that's under our network. Very cool. So I have a question on uh, drunk GM. Is uh, Are there differences in GM style or even GMs who prefer beer or a good scotch? And how different are those games based off of the different oh, types of drinking? This makes me This makes me wish Dan or his co-host Susan were on. Because that that's more there for a, but at the same time, uh, Dan is a beer drinker and he works for a beer distributor. And then my co-host Mike is very much a Scotch drinker. So I want to say yes, but I'd have to like pull my actual crew to get better information. Yeah, well, this, this is funny because we can actually test this theory out here. So the um, for uh, our big cons out here, we've been infamous as a group to um, empty the hotel's reserves of cider at every convention. <laughs> yeah, we are big cider drinkers out here for, for some reason. Yeah. That is me. Right? I am not much of a beer drinker. I am a cider drinker. Cider and hard liquor. That's it. 
Yeah, and, and, and you know, Denver's definitely gone through a little renaissance recently. If you haven't been up here, the uh, we're very much like like Austin or Portland in the sense that we've got a. a uh, I think we're second in the in the the continent for a number of microbreweries out here, which you'd think oh, would make nice. and, and we're Coors country too, right? And uh, which also we're yeah. Michelob. They're here. I mean, everybody who is in beer has a huge thing here. Um, apparently, because they like the water, you know, Rocky Mountain filtered before too many people get <laughs> in it. And um, but and so you'd think it'd be all about beer, um, but yeah, amazingly enough, the, there's also a decent amount of cideries. And uh, a couple of distilleries are opening up now. There's you know a couple of places that are actually doing um, craft distilling, and um, even like weird stuff. Nice. Like there's a craft distillery and hidden speakeasy in the springs that um, they do um, gin of all things. And I hate oh, gin. Oh, nice. I think gin's awful. Me and Bombay Sapphire do not get along at all. <laughs> and their gin is actually readily drinkable. It just, it doesn't taste like a juniper bush. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, no, it's actually fantastic. We got, you know, so that, that's here, but yeah, for some reason, ciders are on the, on the menu and I like ciders too. I mean, I think a good you know, apple cider, pear cider, you know, so we got the cidery GMs. We should, we could have a little alliance. It'd be like, or maybe a tequila GMs, either one, but the, uh, I don't know. Oh God, no, not tequila. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, I, 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 that, I, I never gets along with me. Nope, I have a horrible tequila story. I can't really share uh, on a podcast, but uh, but come on the Savage Cruise and we'll yeah, show you what yeah, happens. Yeah, after. come on, the, yeah, come on the Savage Cruise and, and well, I'll do. Uh, I'll have another straight tequila night. Yeah, there's a difference though when you go out to the uh, Caribbean. Uh, and keep drinking all night. The only thing you can say that the bartender understands is "bama mama," and you just keep them going. <laughs> I was gonna say lots, lots of rum, uh-huh. lots of rum gonna happen on this cruise. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we, if we, I had the cash for a cruise, I would do it. But <laughs> yeah, well, we we need to get your patreons uh, jet jet fueled and uh, then because man, yeah. the cruise is not that bad. It's like five sixty five is the for an the interior nice. berth. Right, so and that's that's all that's your food bad. for seven days, which is, I mean, wow. I mean, you might not be in the the upper weight classes, but uh, you know, I walk into an all you can eat buffet and they start, you know, calling the police and they, as uh, John Panay would say, oh, you no, leave we're, now. <laughs> right? We're that weird family that actually does a Disney World every year for oh, cool. the food. So like, <laughs> so you, oh, I can put it down. Yeah, yeah. So then you're you're already in the cruise family. That's all. Like it's very similar similar <laughs> logic. Just fewer fewer mice, hopefully. Um, <laughs> hopefully, right? You never know. As long as we avoid the norovirus, we'll be good. And, yeah. and no, Legionnaires' disease. Oh, Legionnaires' the other one. Yeah, Legionnaires' yeah, yeah. disease is the big uh, yeah. one that I've been thinking about. Yeah, we'll have to go get you know, immunized before we go. It's funny how GMs get talking and you end up on these really weird divigations. So now I'm thinking about, like, what if we ran a plague game where it starts on a cruise ship? I'm like, oh, wait, but the, the War whole, of the Dead. War of the Dead. War totally of the Dead starts the, on a cruise ship. Right? You're, yep. And it's uh, off of Florida, but not on Orleans. But it's close enough. We could totally run. That would be a great scenario to run, like, the first night on the cruise. Like, get everybody in, in the mood. Like, yeah, just in case this cruise ship got taken what over by the, zombies right now. What I was thinking is run it as a, I, I, I'm going to say a, a bad word. A LARP, a big cruise ship gamer LARP, That'd be fun. That, where you're not running War of the Dead. Yeah, I can say that would actually be kind of word. amazing, especially for like the Savage Cruise, where everybody like is going for Savage World, just everybody has a deck of cards on them, right? LARP it up, and, and then and then and basically we declare everybody who's not with us as a gamer is a zombie. 
So yes. you, oh, I think that would piss the people on the ship off. <laughs> As right? we run around shooting. Oh. Yeah, but what are they going to do? Kick us out? That's We're right. <laughs> excuse, excuse me, ma'am. I know, you, I know you're a, uh, a 75-year-old lady trying to enjoy your cruise, but I need to roll some dice to attack you. <laughs> and I'm going for a headshot. Are you all right with that? See, we'll just ask permission. Right? Just get, get, get affirmative consent, and then we're good. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I talked about this a little bit before we started, so I want to make sure we get this question out. For you being the person who's doing Swadecast, uh, two questions yeah. for you. What right now would you say is your favorite part of Swade, and what is your least favorite part of Swade? So, honestly, my favorite part of Swade is the easiest question for me because it's the teachability. I never really felt that Deluxe Edition, which is where I kind of hopped on board, was written very well for teaching the reader to play. It was all there, but didn't really help you get through it. You really had to watch somebody do it or be part of a game to really get it. I feel like the Suede Adventures Edition is written so much better for a new player to be able to luckily get that book from a game store, open it, read it, and be able to run the game without needing someone who already knows the system. I agree. And yeah, I, th- I think I one of the, I agree the, with that. the big points of that is being – there's two reasons for that, I'd say. One is the extra clarity on what you can spend bennies for and how m- much bennies need to flow, like the spice. Yeah. And two um, – trappings so i know a lot of people who are very experienced already have an issue with how powers have changed in suede versus wex and how it seems like there's a lot less creativity with trappings um well i i I comprehend their point i think by laying out so many default power modifiers you give new players options that they will have agency over and don't need to think about how they want to trap their their bolt spell. I mean, I, I know like Richard Wilcock yeah. a couple years back did an entire thread on the forums. It was like, here's 20 different ways you can skin bolt. And they were everything from, you know, vampiric effects to um, psychological effects to all these you know, interesting things you could you could have done in the old system. And I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. This is great new people aren't going to ever do this. They're just going to take what you did, which is great. Publish it. Um, whereas in yeah. Suede, all of those defaults that are just already done for you and they're listed there um, make that so much more readily approachable that I think the the downside to the customizability or the, um, the creativity in the back end um, is less of an issue because if you're already going to be creative and already know the system well enough – you should be able to publish your own house rules or publish your own setting book or uh, oh definitely so i think that that, that was a it's good act- trade off oh sorry yeah no it's actually one of those things i find funny because doing the research into that kind of stuff especially when the new edition is coming out from the things shane and clint had said what we have in adventures edition is how it was all, always intended to be it just wasn't very clearly spelled out with that before now granted the being able to modify on the fly wasn't part of it but the fact that like the big part of a trapping is just kind of a descriptor and then maybe you pick a few mechanics was always its intention from what i've done research with what clint was saying and then people kind of made a mountain out of a molehill where it was vague and we all just added on to it especially since in my experience savage worlds is this system very few people up until now, Adventures Edition has changed it a bit, 
were coming into Savage Worlds as their first game. A lot of this is kind of the game for former game masters or current game masters. So a lot of us came at experience and we saw the openness, which was actually the vagueness of the writing and just ran with it. There's nothing stopping us from doing that now, but how it's written now is better for someone new coming into the game. Someone who doesn't have years of GM experience, who's already comfortable with vagueness and making it up. Right. They can, you know, you just, you can come in. It's accessibility, I think, is, is, yes. is the big thing there. Oh, no. Accessibility is huge for me. So let's flip, let's flip it to the other side. If, if you had to pick something <laughs> that you're not really too keen on, what would that be? All right. I'm, I, I told you ahead of time I have a cheat and there's technically two because one doesn't have much to do with the book. And it's, I hinted at it a little bit. It was their messaging of how they did the feedback for when they first released the, how rapidly they bounced back with new additions, how quickly they shifted. They, there was a lot of great stuff in it, but it happened so rapidly. They had the issues of they said the game was officially released on drive through and we still got like four more additions where if they said it was out in play test, just the difference of a word. And once it hit printing, called it the release, would have changed perspectives and stuff a lot. And that's, again, an accessibility thing, because I actually dealt with some people who were thinking about getting into Savage Worlds. And once they started seeing the new additions, like the new updates and all constantly happening so frequently, they got turned off and didn't want to go into Savage Worlds yet because they weren't confident that the rules were solid yet. And it wasn't so much what was changed, but how it went about had some really bad messaging to it. That just, it happens sometimes. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. How many wheels are rolling at the same time? Behind the scenes, like Shane's also trying to get all the aces to do jump starts, and that those are going to go live onto drive-through, and that the drive-through platform needs to go live with the Adventurers Guild, basically the version of um, yeah, you know, uh, swag. And um, so we're, we're we're so deep in the the acronym swag, suede, swag, and we're doing SWAT. And you know, there's just we're we're running out of, of four letter uh, S. Uh, right. <laughs> and you know, I I was one of those people because I printed four point two and put it yeah. in a notebook, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh well. <laughs> Maybe I printed a yeah. little too soon, and then I printed the what five point one or five point two, the one that actually went to print. I did reprint yeah. that one. So yeah, I completely yeah, I completely understand. I see what you're, I see what you're saying, and, and it oh, makes sense to and, me um, because four point oh, two at one point was what was going to the one going to print. The were absolutely positively done, and then we had like three more books, right? But there's also the thing, especially as you guys said, you saw Alpha. People don't realize while it's all, while it's small things here and there, some of us put weeks of work into, you know, converting work we already had over to suede or doing contract work for upcoming suede settings and stuff. And 1.0 screwed up a lot of our work. Right. Because just some things just change pretty drastically. And then things like at the very end, the change in the wound penalties for healing. I actually really like that rule. But if you had a mechanic in a third-party product that was written all around that, you got to go back and edit all that stuff. Right. And this is weeks after release. Charisma disappeared late. Yeah. And you got to think. No, we did know, know that, that was coming, at least. They, they, they kind of gave, gave us that heads up. <laughs> right. The, uh, but yeah, with every stat block, you know, any product you have, yeah. that, that touches every stat block. And then it also touches all of the edges that dealt with Charisma and um, 
you know, and then that one, you know, that one was you know, was just big in in in, in general. Just but a, a good change, a good change overall, I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh no, it that's the weird thing is basically all the change. I, there's a couple things where I'm like meh about, but for the most part, it's a much better game now. Right. But it is these things of, and then you have this issue of when 1.0 was so different from Alpha. The aces are expected to be pretty well versed in the system already. We've had six weeks with it, but there's so many changes and so many of the changes are small and buried in the text. At least the people I work with, none of us were confident that we were actually very like as versed in it, or at least that much more versed than the people who've seen it for the first time. Right. Cause it all just shifted. So it had these weird issues. And if they just called that whole section a play test, it would have helped. If some of the stuff just was a little more nailed down, though, I do love everything that changed. And again, that's the inevitable. They don't know things are going to be problems till they're problems. Exactly. So. Until the community gets their hands on it. What what I appreciate yeah. is when all of that timing happened, we were working on a project and at least we knew we were going to have time off for the holidays, November and December. <laughs> so when all those changes happened, I could have only imagined if all that had gone down that say May or June before trying to take a oh, game to Gen Con. So we can look yeah, at that, that positive. All those changes happened during the holidays when there was some downtime, when we weren't trying to push things out to conventions or try to get things to print. Um, so it could yeah. have been much worse. Oh, yeah, it, it could have been so much worse. Now, looking at that as well, I know that a lot of folks uh, who were working hard on that project were working on it, you know, like Christmas Day. And so yeah. I can really appreciate the work that was put in there and, you know, give those people a hug and a handshake because, <laughs> yeah, as, as crazy as it was for us on this end, on the other end, understanding that they were doing, you know, 18 hour days on Christmas Day to figure some things out. You know, we got to yeah. we got to give a hand out there to that. Wow. They really care about this. Oh, community. Yeah. And so much props for them, because. It's one of those things of like the turnaround was so fast we couldn't keep up, but the turnaround was also so fast because they were working so hard. Yeah, that was kind of the so. the, the, the blitz too. The uh, and, and the the nice thing about these criticisms is they're all temporal, like they don't matter yeah. going forward. Right, know? exactly. It's That's like, why I called it a cheat, right? honestly. <laughs> but the no, here, here's the thing: like, like similar perspective, similar issue is the we we um, uh, not shelved, but we uh, changed the timeline on when we're putting out our jumpstart realizing that the first group was jump starts, there were maybe 50%, 25% who hadn't even converted to suede. And yeah. just the the initial uh, community backlash against it, they're like, what do you mean this isn't in suede? Um, and just the the realization that, yeah, no, no, we need to have these, this needs to be nailed down. This needs to be for the new edition in all its glory. Uh, not, not just even converted for the new edition, but taking advantage of the new things in the new edition and uh it's like yeah oh, yeah no, we were we were we were like we're, we'll go in the second batch we're like nope 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 we need to make sure everything yeah. is is polished and done and uh and play tested and uh so we you know no i i totally get that because again the book i'm working on my plan was for it to come out when swag hit because i'd been working on this that whole six weeks beforehand and everything and when i started seeing the changes coming i'm like I'm just going to shelve this and I'm going to come back to it after I feel like the rules are settled and I've had the time to really dig into them and find out how to make it shine. And from that, 
entire systems got scrapped and rewritten and so much got redone because like you said it's not just oh you want to convert it you want to make the new thing shine you want to take advantage of these improvements so what one one quick positive before we get to your second negative the um one thing i think is kind of cool and we've, we've danced around it so far is i think this new edition has made modularity really clear that the, yes. the, the fact that they pulled out the entirety of chase rules and put in a new one. And I even liked the damn chase rules before this one that they put out. Like, Oh, that's heresy. Right. <laughs> People yell at me, <laughs> the old chase rules, but like the new old chase rules, the ones that were literally like the, the yeah. sleepy hollow ones. I'm like, yeah, these are fucking great. I like, I want to run this and totally different paradigm. than they're laying out the cards and doing those things. And, and the cards give me some ideas like, well, why don't we make yeah. the cards matter? What if it's a six does something or it's a train effect? Or whatever, you know, there's all these ideas you can have that, but it, it made clear to us that this new system, unlike some other RPGs, and this is kind of a holistic thing, but some RPGs, everything is inclusive. You cannot pull one mechanic mm-hmm. out. It, it relies too much on a universal philosophy where every stat touches everything else or whatever. Um, but the fact that you saw, you know, Shane and Clint and Jody and them pop out the chase rules and put a whole nother module in there very much like a um uh cyberpunk deck with your you know uh skill slots in your cortex where you nope now you speak french here we go johnny mnemonic yeah it is (laughs) um the that inspired us and like our our swat is going to be a modular toolkit that's what we're calling it it's a toolkit it's not a setting it's a toolkit because we hope that you can take the things we've designed and use them in whatever other setting you want. So the, there are going to be some things which are very skinned to fantasy and police procedurals. Those will be very skinned there. Yeah. Yes. You know, there, there still is setting flavor, but there will be a ton of tools where you can run this in Victorian horror or in, you know, um, uh, swashbuckling romance or in the grim dark future because it is a modular bit of crunch that accomplishes some task that is independent of um, the setting that we're in. And so while it might not be as thematic, I mean, thematic things are fun, but they're highly unuseful outside of, you know, the one area <laughs> you're in. Um, we're like, no, 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 let's do yeah. this where you can use a bunch of these tools in whatever. And I think that's, that's a kind of a cool suede um, uh, change versus Wex. Oh, no, definitely. I actually, when I do my writing, and this was even back when I wrote for D&D and stuff, I try to write that way as much as possible for that exact reason. Like, my favorite setting books from, uh, I wanted to say Sway, but at that point it was just Deluxe, were things like ETU. ETU isn't, like, yes, yeah, so everybody loves that setting, everybody loves that plot point, but really, that's the modern horror book. If you want to do a modern game with horror, you're probably picking up that book. I love Deadlands Noir because... That is the detective book. Whether or not you're playing Deadlands Noir, you're probably going to use that book because well-written rules, well, yeah, the, you know, the flair you can kind of season on and put some spin on it, really well-written rules should be able to be modular even in their settings. And I love books that are just those modular things, but that's the GM in me, so. We agree. So let's get to your your other (laughs) big... Uh, and I don't want to call it a negative, just just something that you just yeah, no. don't really And prefer. it's a nitpick. Yeah, honestly, it's a nitpick. And it's networking, weirdly enough. Mainly because how it's described in the book 
is, and I get for Fast Furious Fun, networking is one role and you get your answers. And you can, as a GM, go more into it. But in the book, it's one role, you get your answers. And I feel like that kind of cheapened mystery games, detective games, that kind of stuff. So I'm doing some work to flesh that out and do a more detailed networking in the work I'm doing. But that was one where I was like, oh, yay, cool, they added networking. Oh, wow, so this has made mystery games way less interesting if I just do it this way. No, I agree with you. But for games where it's not the focus, it's like, yeah, that's great. But at the same time, I'm like, ETU, Deadlands Noir, these are core settings, and networking as written would kind of suck in them. But what's nice is at least that nugget is there in the base book. It's something you can say, networking as it is there, this is what it is here. At least you can dovetail it. And, And the descriptions of the edges and some of the new hindrances and some of the flow do make uh, that module expansion much easier because we now at least have a description of what needs to get changed in whatever setting book that's that we're doing, whereas uh, it's given us so much more leeway to add things like that. Networking is a perfect example of that. It's networking is yeah. here, and this is what it will become in ours. It gives us a nice no. place on a sell sheet, too, when you're trying to get a setting book going, what is different in the setting book? Oh, this is what's different. Yeah, no. Um, I, that's kind of exactly. And that's a big reason why I say it's kind of a nitpick, because the core foundation is actually still great there. I just feel like it. some people, if you don't read into it and you don't pick up a setting book, it feels like, oh, it doesn't support these kind of games as well as it actually does. Right. But that's where people like us go in and, again... My Hellgate High, it doesn't sound like it's an investigation game, but it takes a lot of notes out of Powered by the Apocalypse Monster of the Week, where it has a very in-depth networking system, so you can make a whole mystery out of just networking, and I wouldn't be able to do that without the foundation that's in the core book. Yeah, yeah. I will tell you that my one nitpick is the fact that you can ready two items in one turn. For some reason, I, that just doesn't sit right with me because if I disarm someone, they can just grab that weapon. You know that you can draw two weapons in on your turn, and I just I they don't know. They did rewrite the difficult locations to sp- specifically say off the ground counts as a difficult location that costs an action now, which fixed it. The thing that bugs me a little bit, and this isn't one I go too much into because I've just house ruled it out, is I'm fine with being able to ready two weapons as a free action, but if my pistol's already out. Say I have a revolver, why can't I take those two free actions to drop two bullets in my gun? Because that's a lot easier than pooling two guns out of holsters. Sure, yeah. So I've personally house-ruled of reload actions can count towards your readied weapons. You can ready ammo, essentially. And it's fixed it. Uh, I read somewhere recently that, that like reloadings are free actions that you can use once per action. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I, that might be a tweak I missed. So. Yeah. Oh, the, uh, Dustin's the, over here causing all kinds yeah, of feedback. But I, had, right? I had to grab the uh, book. No, I, I think I remember reading <laughs> this. I think I had to pull this up. But yeah, I think there's there's something in there where it's not even, they don't even count as actions. You can reload. Okay, here's, okay, from memory. The if if it, if a gun does not have a reload number next to it on the equipment chart, reloading is you can reload once as a free action per action. Gotcha. If it does have a reload number next to it, such as a so if you look at the, I think it's between like um, crossbow and heavy crossbow, 
um, or maybe mm-hmm. it's bow and have and crossbow or bow and heavy. Anyways, there's a difference there. So you can reload bows as a free action, but a heavy crossbow has like it says reload two. You must spend two actions to two. reload that weapon. So I think those are the 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 new crunch differences is that it's actually reloading becomes much freer now, right? Which might fix your nice. Don't quote me on that list. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with all those bro. updates, it's. <laughs> I've only read the book four times. So. Uh, oh, and Landau is doing a classic nitpick I have of, let me go ahead and quote the rules. I have the rule book in my hand, but I'm not going to open the rule book to look at the rules to determine if I'm correct or not. Know, even if we're editing this together, like there's in front of us, oh, and we're all wearing our Rocky Mountain Savages shirts because we're all patriotic and, and club supporting. There is a mess of wires and dials and a phone and drinks. And we have one mystery cord somewhere that if you touch it wrong, it it puts a, <laughs> a, a zzz back into the, the horrible line, feedback. Right. And so I'm like, I just don't want to uh, risk going deaf. And I oh, know Dustin's got yeah. book. So, so real quick too. Uh, I know we're kind of jumping to stuff here, um, but I want to make sure that we get. Oh, to, we, I want to make sure we get to this. So, what can you tell us uh, about your new book? And sorry, I know you just okay. said the name of it, and uh, it already no, it's fine. Left my brain. I'm I'm rushing to get the proof done because I'm little secret. I'm gonna gift one to Dom from Saving Throw and Wild Cards, but I also need one because I'm running con games to start playtesting it. But it is Hellgate High. And some people have asked, what's the difference between this and ETU? And one of the ways I like to describe it is East Texas University, if you're a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, is very much Buffy season four. Like it is a very specific time in that series. Hellgate High pulls it back. This is high school students. It also isn't in Texas. I actually grew up in Southern California. And I wanted to make a game that took place in inland Southern California because it's such a weird location that just has so many weird people and stuff like, oh, it's near the beach. It's near the mountains. It's full of meth labs. So it's this high school focused supernatural game in inland California. It's also where I'm going to really be developing these investigation rules because I'm, I'm kind of playing around. I'm a bit of a mad scientist with the rules. Where violence isn't the first solution, typically. And it's not just, oh, high school students, they're weaker and stuff. But I'm working on systems to better research your enemy, both on what they are, what they can do, but what they care about. How you might be able to talk them into stuff. And actually talking down enemies. Because while we have social conflicts, the thing is, and I love social conflicts for what they are, they assume both sides are already willing to talk. And this really focuses on what happens when you have the madman with the gun or the really angry ghost, and they're looking to kill you, and you don't want a violent solution, and all you have is your words. And while we now have tests that can shake them, it doesn't actually take them out. So I'm kind of taking those concepts and expanding on them in a really weird way to try and make something that can also then be taken out and dropped into any kind of game you want because as i said i prefer to write for games where that stuff can be modular excellent sounds very cool yeah no and going back to your, your earlier point you know building on that the um of, of networking so the funny thing is is, is seeing that exact same um uh, simplification in suede the 
in in SWAT, we have a version that's more police networking, where you want to get information networking. Uh, so it kind of goes back to the Deadlands Noir and the investigative kind of networking. And then in the future project, Marginalia, we are working on a system which is much more power brokering and persuasive networking. Who are you in bed with literally and figuratively? Who do you have yeah. blackmailing over? And so those are kind of systems that need to have their own mini game or modularity or yeah. kind of system. That, and I could definitely see why that's not in the main book. Um, but like, you know, the, the main book yeah. now has got like um, social combat where it's you can do trials, right? You can actually – it's a little mm-hmm. bit more fluffy. And I love more, that. Right? <laughs> and we're like, well, okay, great. Let's expand that a little bit. Let's just give some parameters for your trials. Like, so, you know, if we are police and we're investigating, you know, fantasy crimes, um, how do we how do we bake in some, how well have you done in the previous two or three sessions to gather evidence, you know, track the right people, get the right context, contacts, and then how does that resolve in this trial and yeah so you know adding a little yeah. few more inputs to it that'd be a little bit of different you know, different other thing but how do you use words to take out supernatural right and the yeah uh, that kind of dovetails with a new a new challenge that's that's in um suede you can no longer disrupt spells as a physical character yes and that changes things interestingly and that was a very you know recent recent change. I think it was like between five one and five two maybe. And I'm like, wow, that's that's different. I, I like it in the regards that you're not you're not making powers gimped by the fact that you can just shake somebody and they go away. Um, but now, what do you do when you are? Do you have to incapacitate somebody and that's the only way to get to, to knock their spells down? Or is there something else there? And I think as designers, some people will say, well, no, in my world, I really do want you to be able to. Um, stop a spell with you know uh, you know something less than lethal but still physical. And other times, no, yeah. no, you know, you must die before your magics disappear. <laughs> now, I will say I may get some blowback on this because I'm testing out some new stuff. Because what I found my solution is is I've actually implemented mental wounds, which is essentially social wounds. It's kind of a concept taken from fate that you have physical and social health tracks. And to simplify it, you just take the bigger penalty between physical and social wounds. But at that point, you just have the social skills work just like damage rolls, so you don't have to learn a new system. And I create a derived stat for spirit and a derived stat for intelligence. So if you're trying to hit them emotionally or hit them with reason, and you just go with it. It Surprisingly, once I worked it out, it's only like two paragraphs of text. And so far in our playtesting, it's worked really well. Oh yeah, and it, and it, because and I, it mirrors. It sounds like it mirrors directly the way wounds and fatigue work. So everything. Yes, it does, and it it also fixes a little problem I've personally have with Savage Worlds, which has always been the fear table. And this is just a personal thing because I mainly run horror, and I run long form horror. Like I've had an eighty plus session ETU campaign, and with the fear table, you end up with like a ton of phobias, and you just have to make up phobias and all this. So instead, now failing fear rolls just deals damage to that mental table as well, which really simplified the fear rules. I don't have to look up another table, and I just have a mental incapacitation table that handles all of it. No, exactly. And I, I think that's a nice – you almost need that if you are going to do horror in the mm-hmm. Cthulhu-esque style where you have sanity. Yes, I like that concept. I like the concept of, of, of mirroring existing mechanics that work the same way. There's the same defenses. You just call them different things. Yeah, I, I have. No, no, no. There's, there's nothing more to learn. You literally just describe it once yeah. and everyone should be able to play it. 
pretty much that's basically what I did. I mean, even the math is if you fail a fear check with no penalty, you're shaken. For every minus one that the fear check was is a D6 of damage, mental damage. So if it's a fear check at minus two and you fail, you already know it's 2D6. You don't have to look it up. That That's that concise building I was trying for in the book. And that's actually what I'm most excited to see when I go to Chupacabra Con, because we're going to finally be playing test, play testing that out in the wild, not with people I've run play tests for before. Always recommended. Yeah, be interesting to see how it yeah. works. So the fight. So, so, so I, I've got the page number on reloading. So I will actually we will quote the rules. So nice. our listeners don't have to. So one oh five, reloading, knocking an arrow or loading a stone in a sling are free actions that may be performed once per action. Reloading a crossbow bolt, clip, magazine, speed loader, or single bullet so that it's ready to fire, chambered, cocked, etc., is an action. Some weapons are slower to reload, like heavy crossbows or black powder weapons. They require a number of actions to reload, listed as Reload X in their description. So there's three... St- okay, yeah, so that still has my hypothetical revolver issue of dropping... Like, cocking and everything, yeah, but when you're dropping one bullet and cocking, it's a lot more than two or three type situation, but yeah. So the uh, but you, uh, you now may perform the same action more than once. Yes, and I am so happy for that. The, well, that's the other thing. I haven't seen it play tested in the wild yet. But what happens? And I think they've they've redone Frenzy, right? Is Frenzy? It's like what happens to you, Frenzy? Oh, I don't Frenzy, remember. right? So the the I, I've yet to see the Munchkin build that wants to just you know slice and dice and Julianne every turn. Yeah, whirlwind of death. And I think those all. I think they still say per turn. So if you Frenzy, you can Frenzy once per turn. I'm guessing that's actually. I think I think that's how they're set up now. Yeah, so those those are not those are I'm, not actions. I'm waiting those are for turns. the claws martial artist brawler combo of death. That's that's the one I'm waiting to see people come out with. Right. Well, and I'm sure you can, I'm sure that's going to be intrinsic to the martial arts companion. That I I keep hitting yeah. the shade. I'm like, if you need me to edit that, I'd be happy to take a look at. It. <laughs> you know, whenever that one comes out, we want to get our hands on that early because that's you know we kind of know what's going to be in the other companions because we already have a published companion for them. But the martial arts one could change paradigms greatly you know there's that's the one that we don't uh, have yeah that one could be as crazy as that. supers on what it changes and yeah it needs it needs definitely a lot of play testing i can understand why that may take a while to come out yeah i'm weird i i am looking forward to martial arts but i think i'm most looking forward for the horror companion because the horror companion we have is just so old now so much of it's been changed and tweaked and revised and i feel like because pinnacle does so many horror settings i feel like they might have learned a lot that can go into that book so i'm really curious to see where that book's going personally oh well yeah i mean i think the the ritual ritual magic from etu mm-hmm. almost guaranteed to make a jump um because that is so particularly useful and oh yeah i've been stealing that for so many campaigns i can't even begin Right, you know, that alone is the reason to pick up ETU. Like, oh, you want to do ritual magic? There's mm-hmm. tools, you know, no, 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 there's buy ETU. There's a, there's a deal that's in there. Let me ask you a question on on, on doing reviews and stuff like that. So the um, yeah, you do product reviews, and I think you were the first video that ever did a review for Buccaneer through Hell and High Water. I think you were our first because I remember I think that was the first time I saw your show. Was the it Fox was like, hey, we got a review. Look, check this out. And I was like, <laughs> oh my god, there's a guy with video, and he actually bought our book. Like, there, there it is in the wild. And uh, so we appreciate that. So we wanted to shout, yes, thank you, no, no, no. thank you for reviewing our book. Yeah, no problem. 
honestly, I did so many reviews, a lot of them blur together, because there was a time where I was, like, trying to crank out two a week to, like, get a backlog. So it's a, it's a blur. <laughs> right? The, uh, so the, to help you out, as you, you do do them, the, how do producers get a hold of you to, if you want them to review your book and they send you free copies, all that good stuff? Well, I'm finally getting to that point. I'm still not quite that big. You guys are actually the first people who ever contacted me for an interview, and it was very weird, but thank you. But really, it's the whole, as you said, people are so accessible. And when I was doing written reviews, because I actually did those for a few years, I did a blog before that, I worked for some people into ghostwriting, and when you work for other people, they want you to go through specific channels to get products. And then I didn't have any of that, and I did a lot of my work as ghostwriting, so I didn't have much of a name. So then I went and I went, you know what? I'm just going to ask. And really, that's how I've gotten, if I'm not dropping a few bucks or it's something I happen to already own, you'd be surprised. You just get in touch with the writers and you're like, hey, I'm looking to typically what I did for a lot of them was like, this month we're doing this theme of types of games and we think yours would be a great fit. Are you interested in us doing a review? And you'd be like, yeah, here's a copy. There are certain industries which are a lot larger that have dedicated people who do that. Like literally, part of the 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 the, the um, advertising, marketing, and PR people is literally people who like yeah. contact quote unquote influencers and other channels and ship stuff out to get it out there. As much as we'd like to think that Savage Worlds is huge, it is just one. What well, well, Shane always quotes like one and three quarters people. And it's like you know Shane, Jody, a little bit of Clint, the you know, part timers. And uh, that's definitely, I mean, even just being on the other end of it, like, like, like you said, trying to get reviews done uh, on a schedule, even when you're buying the stuff, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's just like, yeah, you yeah. know, finding the time and da da da, da. So I, I could definitely see how, um, you know, all of the other aces who were, the vast majority of the aces are very, you know, small time publishers, you know, put out a book or two a year at most and da da da, da. So if you guys want, you know, contact Bobby, he will review your product. Yeah. Oh, Definitely. The weirdest one is how many publishers I'd be like, oh, I'm interested in this one product. And then they go, here is everything I've made <laughs> and get like whole catalogs of like, if you're interested in anything else, like there was one setting I was playing on reviewing and they're like, yeah, here's the saying book. Here's the GM book. Here's four adventures we have getting ready to be published. Okay. <laughs> You, you found you found the lonely single at the bar just waiting for someone to come over and say hello and and it's like uh, excuse yeah. me and it's like hi yes let's get married let's do it let's have three kids and uh, you know, here's everything <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's true some of us are starved for attention and uh, <laughs> so we overreact <laughs> when yeah you get any, any that's, little that's the other thing though is you show up you give writers the respect they deserve because as someone who came from a career background with film and stuff is. A lot of us, everybody assumes the work we do should be free. So you go, hey, I respect what you're doing. I'm really interested in this. And you're very professional about it. And they love it. And you get in return what you give out. So that is true. That is true. We've, as of late, been done a lot of our shows recently have been Kickstarter shows. And um, it's not really intentionally that way. It's just those are things that our goal is to promote Savage Worlds in all its forms, you know, live, online, you know, Kickstarter, publishing, all that kind of stuff. But you end up getting, those are deadlines we can't miss, you know, like, yeah, you know, yeah. we've got, I mean, our document of people lined up to do interviews, even this for this spring, has got like 15 people in it right now. We are just looking for times to slot people in. And, um, you know, we're <laughs> glad, like, you respond. I was like, hey, Bobby, how about this week? <laughs> you want to talk to us? And um, you're just looking at, like, like knowing, you know, 
when we can get people in and what obligations or Kickstarter obligations, which, you know, we have to get them on the phone, uh, recorded and done in conjunction with their Kickstarter or else, you know, it's kind of a useless interview. It's, it's, you know, it's, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't help do the promotion it needs to. And so we've been so busy writing and editing, um, this, these last four or five months that, you know, like the last, I think the last three shows are all in some way tied with Kickstarters just because those are things we couldn't put off. You know, they, they, they couldn't happen, um, other than, uh, in conjunction with a yeah. certain yeah. timeline, it starts being a hobby and then it becomes a profession and you're, you're readily, you know, entering that territory now too, where you've got multiple shows you're putting out, you're producing other people's content. Um, you're putting out a book. The, uh, so, you know, when we are seeing all how active you were like, Hey, we, got, we should get him on the, on the, on the phone and help you know, promote <laughs> his stuff. So. Well, I will say I'm in this weird situation where I'm actually a stay at home parent because I have a special needs child. So I was like, I have all this time. I have this degree in filmmaking and i care about this so why don't i do it and i've always been a bit of an overachiever when i do stuff so it was why don't i make an entire network and work myself to the bone and <laughs> well we appreciate it the uh yeah that's kind of the thing I mean, you, you look at the other people we you know we, we the last couple interviews we've done we did um just like you we, we just interviewed um, the guys over at saving throw guys and girls and mm-hmm. um the uh same kind of thing there i mean it, it is it is not even just a a, a career choice. It's a labor of love for all of them. You know, they're, they're, they're not raking in huge money and I hope they rake in much more than they are now. Um, so, you know, they're just looking at how much time, money, effort it takes to put out content. And, um, you start appreciating a lot more. You're like, you know, like yeah. these people are all really in some manner busting their asses for other people's entertainment, you know? So when you see that, it's, it's good to recognize it because it's, it's, it's such a difference than you know the the normal kind of crap you see on the news every day or whatever. Where everyone's just angry and yelling at each other. It's like you know this is a fun hobby. We we get together and have fun and yeah. make friendships and the uh, so when people go above and beyond, it's like yeah, let's help them out. Let's promote. Let's do this. Let's uh you know grow the community and do it in a, in a, in a good way. So yeah, and the people I've been in contact with, you know, saving throw guys off, which is funny because I actually talk to several of them on and off now, but. We, first of all, you don't get into these kind of careers, and I'm air quoting over here because, as you said, they're hobbies that become careers, but you don't devote this kind of time for such little back unless you love it. You just don't. You're not going to see someone going into gaming videos or gaming podcasts for tabletop gaming looking for the big bucks. That's not why we're here. And then the money we do make for the most part from what I've seen, everybody puts it back in to just put out better stuff. Yep. It's not like we're taking it and hoarding it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of funny to me, even like recently learning, um, you know, that there's a little bit, you know, we we are so new as a hobby that the, the historicity of our hobby, like like, like actually keeping track of, of the history of of RPGing is just kind of starting now. Um, you know, where people are getting Mm -hmm. interested in where did this start? Who were the founders? And we're really only in the second or third generation, but I think it was interesting to me to learn that, that Gary Gygax made enough money to buy himself a house and, and actually a little bit of a playboy. I'm like, Wow, I had no idea that you know at least someone made good on home playing. That you know that the uh, yeah it, it it doesn't sound like he went you know full bore uh, professional athlete uh, crazy, but you know it was the fact that he uh, threw parties yeah. and had a, a Hollywood Hills kind of style house, or whatever it was. Like you go, Gary. I'm glad for you, buddy. The, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, he was the guy lucky enough where he made a tabletop game and then got it made into a Saturday morning cartoon. So right, uh, exactly. Yep. 
He had that licensing money. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's a funny thing, too. It's like, you know, also you, you look at, you know, Star Wars and how much of the money came from Kenner. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it ended up going back into that. It wasn't, you know, yeah, box office sheets were amazing, but the studios kept most of that. Uh, the, the fact that, like, Lucas, <laughs> Lucas did Lucas films not on Hollywood money, but on I Want the Toy money. And it's just like, wow. You know that, that's a that's a cool little re- revelation that you know yeah my little Kenner toy is what what made you know Lucas Arts you know so what I'm hearing is Shane needs to make Deadland Stone action figures yes but I'd buy it <laughs> I would too I would so buy it I mean a stone plushie look cute oh cute stone like you know little like anime eyes and <laughs> yeah it'd be no. cute. No, no. Everybody likes plushies. <laughs> I mean, like, look, everyone likes those those stupid little dolls, the big heads that are eminently collectible. What are they called? Um, oh, the Funko Pops? Yeah, Funko Pops. Yeah. I could give a little background on that. We just had a big conversation. Uh, you look at a company like Gale Force 9. Those guys did miniatures, terrain, parts and pieces, and did it well enough that they're now able to buy IP for Star Trek and produce, you know, Star Trek Ascendancy or uh, able to now uh, get the licensing for dune which even like fantasy flight games couldn't do it's it was selling all the little stuff that everyone wants to play with that got them to where they are all the little widget mm-hmm. and if you can do that well uh then then good things can happen and that's what happened with star wars they they knew how to license star wars to sell enough widgets to keep the momentum to keep people liking it to keep it in people's brains and hopefully here with savage worlds with the new edition and the aces we could get enough books in people's hands consistently enough to keep momentum going for the game and to keep people wanting to keep purchasing more books and more stuff and have more fun and it's not about the money it's about having more fun yeah it's actually one of those funny things and it's the little as you said the little things of stuff like I forget who the second one is, but it's Red and the other character are, you know, iconic characters of Savage Worlds, and they kind of always have been, but they're all over this book. Yeah, Red and Gabe. And that's because, Gabe, thank you. And that's because that works. D&D was in rough shape around the time of third edition. While people won't directly look at those sales, the fact that they had an iconic cast of one for each class when third edition came out, that works. That's why Pathfinder did the same thing. Those iconic characters, those faces you see coming back in new books matter. And the fact that Red and Gabe are becoming more of the forefront, I actually really love because it's, again, it's one of those little subtle things, but it's going to make a big difference for the growth of the hobby because it's a recognizable face people will start to associate with. That actually is true. Like, I haven't played that much Pathfinder in d and I don't own any of the current books. But I do readily recognize, you know, there's the big bald dude with the big purple birthmark or war paint on his head who has a hamster. Like, you know, why? Because that dude's all around. You see that art repeated, and and yeah, no, I agree. The um, one other thing too is I wonder maybe we'll be like prognosticators here and say that within the next three years, Shane will sign a deal for Deadlands to be licensed. That'd be cool. 
Oh, he's worked. He, he's, oh, he's worked on st- stuff and and had stuff yeah. really close. Right? That just never happened. TV shows, movies, yeah, things like. All I could imagine now is a Deadlands Netflix cartoon. That'd be cool, and that would be amazing. That would be amazing. But it's like I mean, they're, they're, like that would be so cool. Right? There is an era now where a bunch of studios are very hungry for fantasy and comics and uh, you know properties. I mean, there are things that are getting picked up uh, and made into big series. So I mean, it, it, it's let's put not, it out there. Hollywood producers dead. And while it, buy it, and while it's still not cheap, animation is much cheaper than it was even ten years ago. Right. I mean, my thought is with with westerns. I mean, uh, and and uh, Dustin sitting right here showed me the sneak peek for the new uh, Deadwood movie. You know, people yeah. are cl- are still clamoring for Deadwood and. It's not Deadlands. It's not horror, but it, it kind of shows to me that that it's sellable. It's sellable. You know. It, it- yeah, I, that's a sad thing. Is in general, like you read industry news in Hollywood, and they think that westerns are on the way out, and are, they're they're out now. They're not on the way out. They are out, and uh, yeah. I hope that turns around because me, yeah, I th- oh, it's all cyclical, right? And it's weird. And, just and, just and, throw some zombies into it. Well, that's the that's kind of the thing now, right? Is that the the supers are in such an ascendant arc that I think that's kind of taking the place of the the same the same market, the market for you know jingoistic American culture films like. The, the Western used to be that about, you know, we're telling stories about ourselves, um, you know, and our aspirations. Yeah, it was the Western, then it was the musical, and then it was the quote unquote blockbuster, which is the iconoclast movie, the roadshow movie. Then it was the action movie, and now we're in the superhero movie. That's pretty accurate. Again, film, film student. Right? Exactly. <laughs> That's true. I agree 100%. And the, um, so it'd be interesting to see if there is, is that, you're right. Like the action movie had that real anti-hero bent to it too. And yes. We're kind of getting out of that. I mean, there is, there, you know, that's still there in, in some of the superheroes. I mean, like, you know, um, uh, Deadpool especially, which is amazing. <laughs> but the, uh, yeah, no, there, 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 there is, yeah, that is kind of the arc. And I wonder, I wonder how much longer the superhero thing goes for it. You know, it, it's, to me, it's just amazing what Marvel's done and their, the cinematic universe and like, is is it, is it done, though? Are we getting there? Is it even slowing here's, down? Here's the thing. The musical has been dead for decades. However, the Disney animated musical has not. The superhero genre will die, but the Marvel superhero genre likely will not. That Disney makes sense. knows very well how to keep their specific brand of genre evergreen. And, and I, I think you're right. I think at some point it's because you have gotten an entire generation of moviegoers or just film consumers now. now fewer and fewer people are leaving their homes to go watch stuff. Mm-hmm. That that is that is their bread and butter. Looking at what Netflix has done, and I think it's Netflix who owns it. Uh, maybe no, it's Amazon. Uh, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on the Tolkien franchise to bring that to TV. So that's, I mean, you got to think it's been more than a decade. I'm pretty sure more than a decade since that the original trilogies were out. We're not talking about the Hobbit because that, mm, whatever, but that has been, that, you know, that franchise alone is still producing uh tangible wool drop big money to keep this on TV. And, you know, there wouldn't have been a game of Thrones had it not been for, the you know what a workshop films and um and you know the entire idea that you could bring that to tv and not be a hollywood blockbuster movie 
um, has really changed the game. And, and even just downstream, like, no, I'm kind of like on a whole little rant now, but man, all the little <laughs> TV shows like The Magicians, that TV show, very low kind of budget comparatively to everything else, but they still put in, uh, you know, effects here and there. That show wouldn't have gotten greenlit, clearly, if it wasn't for. Hey, we did a big bust, big blockbuster Hollywood fantasy, you know, show, and then oh wait, then here comes Harry Potter, and then here comes more Lord of the Rings, and then here comes uh, Game of Thrones, and it kind of trickles down um, to just seeing like you know, like Buffy and other kind of shows like that. Mm-hmm. Just you know, All right, we can we can go down a whole rabbit hole for this. Trust me, we we can do that. Funny things and things a lot of people overlook. Harry Potter was the Marvel Cinematic Universe before the Marvel Cinematic Universe. From the get-go, it said we are making seven interconnected movies. It was the first modern cinematic universe. It was the first epic serialized story for big screen. It was a game changer. More than Lord of the Rings? I mean, like the, the Lord of the Rings, did they had the plan, too. I mean, there was they, they did three a, movies at the same time, I should say. So maybe that's what, more of a one film yeah, over what, six hours. What's hilarious when, cause again, I'm doing a setting that takes place in the year 2001. The first Harry Potter movie and the first Lord of the Rings movie came out in the same year. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 2001 is an insane year for movies. Also, they did this grand scale of they made all the movies together, but they were still within the scope of it's a trilogy. And do not forget that Back to the Future 2 and 3 were shot simultaneously. Right, yep. And thank so, God they did right, not shoot Godfather 2 and 3 together because... Oh, God. I don't know. That means it would have had the whole crew of Godfather 2, so... so you no, know, you're right. It would have been better. Well, okay, yes, because the yeah. third would not have tainted the second. The second would have improved the third, and you wouldn't have had... Sophia yeah. Coppola putting herself in her. Oh yeah, no, no, no. We if they would have done yeah. two and three together, much better actually. Yeah, no, there was an <laughs> opportunity missed there. Andy Garcia, <laughs> Ugh, so bad. But that's also looking. That was it's weird because Back to the Future was actually when you go and you look far enough back, that was one of the first times a studio went. Oh, we're not just looking at a sequel; we're looking at a franchise by making two and three at the same time. They went, this is so big, it's not getting a sequel, it's getting two. And then we move on to things like, oh no, we're buying all three Lord of the Rings. Well, at the same time, someone else went, we're buying all seven Harry Potters when the books aren't even all finished. And now we have the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I guess that's one thing we have to say for Rowling, who I think is crazy. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a Potter downer um, because I grew up with Worst Witch. And okay. Worst Witch had Feruza Balk as a young girl, and she was also in Return to Oz. She oh, was the later craft? in The Craft, yes. Yeah, yeah. So this is before The Craft, but she's always been a creepy actress, right? Like it's just, you know, she's yeah. recently shown up in um, Do- Donovan, Ray Donovan, as kind of a, in her character at least, time has not been kind. And um, I'm not sure <laughs> how much the actress said makeup done, but the um, she's a very precocious but kind of creepy little girl. And there's so much of of worst witch in Harry Potter that no one seems to appreciate. No one recognized it. And I'm like, you want Snape? We had Tim Curry. Tim Curry was Snape. And, um, you know, McGonagall was the, the actress who was from like family ties. And, um, the, uh, the whole broom sequence, the literally let's go out in the court. It was probably even the same castle in Wales in the same courtyard where they did the, let's learn how to use brooms. <laughs> I mean, it's like shot for shot, the exact same from that movie. They, they even had a better game instead of playing Quidditch. They had like a version of like hide and seek. And, um, yeah. 
but there's just so much from that. I'm like, oh, this is just worst witch, and no one, no one knew what I was talking about. And like, Bobby, you're the first person who's even acknowledged worst <laughs> witch as a thing. I have no idea what you're talking yeah, about. I f- I found it on Netflix actually. Right, and 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 again, I'm, I'm sure if I watched it now, it probably wouldn't hold up. And you know, it wasn't a Christopher Columbus or Chris Columbus magical movie with all the effects. But man, for the for its day, it was a great little piece of fiction that that scratched the you're a young kid and you want to go be a wizard, but you can go to boarding school to be such, and you're going to have these weird fantastical professors who you know, and all of those kind of itches that Harry Potter scratched for the the younger generation. I was the kid going, yeah. you don't appreciate it. It's worse, switch. It's a redo. It's so derivative. <laughs> well, what's, what's hilarious. Uh, if you ever do pop culture studies is there's actually three phases of pop culture. There's the originator, the popularizer and the imitator. Rarely the person who did it first is the most well-known. It's typically the person who did it second or third who refined it. That becomes incredibly famous and popular. That's kind of true, and, and 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 there there is no lack of young adult kids with powers books now. I mean, everything from Percy Jackson to the Maze Runners to you know, and a lot of them have a real. Oh yeah, they're also trying to get on the the death match uh, bus, you know, like with Katniss. Yeah, and, with when Hunger Games went huge. Yeah, exactly. And Hunger Games, you're yeah. like, well, Hunger Games is just a redo of that Japanese series where all little Japanese Battle kids. Battle Royale, exactly. Yeah, right? which is uh-huh. an amazing. What movie. a great movie! Battle Royale is kick ass. Right, and then like everyone looks. So this is the thing. It's like it's kind of like being the anime nerd when when Hunger Games comes out, and everyone's just like, "What are you talking about? Japanese stuff? You're weird." And I'm like, yeah, "You love it when it was reskinned rich. with f- stupid Jennifer Lawrence. You think it's the greatest thing ever?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we watched this ten years ago." Uh, like the Departed, that was a reskin of a Japanese movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Reservoir Dogs is too. Mm-hmm. Oh, Reservoir Dogs. I didn't know that one. Yeah, wasn't that a remake I'm of a French on film? The name of it. Uh, you might be thinking of um, La Femme Nikita and Point of No Return, both of which no. I love, by the way. I love Bridget oh. Fonda, even though it's not Femme Nikita. It's still a great movie with <laughs> Dillett McDermott or whatever, or Marooney, whatever. Um, love that movie. But, you know, it's true. I, I, think, I think you're right. I, I, the, that, that whole theory is, is actually a pretty solid one. Curious to think, though, like, is, is – and this might be why. Like, is Tolkien the originator or is he – it just took a generation because like, he was definitely one where his stuff came out and it wasn't nearly as popular until the people- 60s. Tolkien is an imitator, but what he's imitating wasn't contemporary at the time. Tolkien set out to write a mythology. He's actually trying to rewrite in a style similar to Homer than anyone else. He's trying to write in a style similar to things like uh, Iliad, Odyssey. God, what's Grendel? Yeah, I mean, you had uh, uh, Beowulf. Oh, Beowulf, yeah. yeah. Beowulf, yeah. thank you. Yep. Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he was purposefully trying to write the English equivalent of all of this. And he did that with a goal and in an intention. In a lot of ways, Tolkien was already imitating, and that's what partially built to his popularity. Because this is even a little bit different riff on the King Arthur you know, I mean, you mm-hmm. can you can look at uh, how the return of the king is Arthur getting his throne and all that kind of thing. It's a similar. Yeah, he took he actually tried to mythologize a lot of the stray English stuff. The elves are very much based around the English concepts of the fae and fairy within English folklore. And then he again, he spun them and he wove them into his own huge world. 
But yeah, they all have a basis somewhere else. And then there was Tom Bombadil. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Hey, we all make mistakes, right? <laughs> and too much damn singing. The, uh, well, I think the, the funny thing there, though, is I think I think it was Bombadil, the time of musicals when he was writing it. He had to put in some singing. Right? Oh God! <laughs> you gotta, hey Tolkien, you gotta jazz it up a bit. Put in some singing and dancing. You're, you're a little morose. All these little short people, they can't dance. We can't hire them. We already had that problem with with uh, Wizard of Oz. Uh, their union's too big now. We can't hire that. So uh, no, no, no. You <laughs> put in some song and dance. Uh, someone at least four feet tall, five feet tall, maybe. Yeah, Tom Bombadil sounds great. Let's do it. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> you were possessed by all of 1940s Hollywood at once, <laughs> right? Channeled it, just it was right there. Well, no, but, no, no it's, it's it's interesting. I think the Bombadil thing goes back to the Midlands uh, England tradition of just the jolly singer kind of oral history mm-hmm. part of it. I say boo, yeah, boo to you, Tom Bombadil. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am not a Tolkien history buff. I'm actually one of those people, I prefer The Hobbit to The Lord of the Rings. I think he pushed the writing and prose in Lord of the Rings a little harder than needed for his forced, again, his purposefully forced style. But yeah, there's entire books. There are bookcases full of books on like the analysis and breakdown of the historical significance of where he got all of those things from. Oh yeah, well that's what makes the nerddom, right? I mean, the... the It's kind of the the same thing now that we've got. When you get into multi generational, like I think I think Tolkien really took off, you know, decades after he originally put the stuff out. I think he put it out in the forties or fifties, and then it was, you know, really took off in like the seventies is when it just, you know, yeah, yeah, late sixties, right, late sixties. There's the, the kids. The there's even a meme now. There's a popular meme like you might not understand it now, but your kids are gonna love it. And it's got Marty McFly doing the rock and roll thing. Yeah. Well, I've definitely seen one of those come across the screen that it was Tolkien saying, you know, well, you might not, you're, you might not understand it now, but your kids are, you're, but your kids are going to love it. Part of it too is if you look at the superhero movies we talked about, the, I think the reason that there's so much fandom for Marvel isn't as much modern, but the fact that we, we literally have a history of these comic books and different authors touching them through decades back to the twenties and in the thirties. Well, not just that. It's no accident that the Marvel movies are huge when the middle-aged demographic now are the ones who were the prime age for the X-Men animated series and the Spider-Man animated series and the televised serialized superhero genre. That's legit, because I think you could just immediately say, okay, so then what was the first? Oh, Batman. Batman was on TV, and then the generation after that had the big blockbuster Keaton and We're, we're still Batman asking films. why they just haven't made a movie based off the Batman animated series. Why Why don't you just... They did. It's Mask of the Phantasm, and it is amazing. It is a bit, but I mean, for live action, I mean, why don't you just riff oh, off... Yeah. Yeah, that's the vibe you need for the live action, right? You haven't, you're having trouble figuring that out. Well, that's the vibe you need. It's got to be the writer's thing. It's like the people who are actually in those writing rooms. It's it's this weird thing of as great as it is as its own movie, uh, The Dark Knight actually kind of set Warner Brothers back about 10 years because all they've been trying to do is recreate The Dark Knight rather than realizing that worked not because it's a Batman movie, but because of other factors in making it a good suspense movie. And they took all the wrong messages and wrong lessons from Dark Knight. They're finally starting to shift away from that, 
but you can see that a lot of what's considered like the Snydering of the Warner Brothers movies oh, yeah. is really just them trying to recreate the huge success that Dark Knight was. Oh, even just the color palette they use. They use the same mm-hmm. blue tone filter on everything. And it's like, guys, Metropolis is a boring place now. You made it so eh. like it works and you've got a moody bat dude, but everybody else is not as depressing as Batman is. So you know, lighten up, guys, right? I mean, it's just, it's just dark. In, it's dark in every way. It's dark in mood, dark in lighting, dark in color palette, you know? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's technically a multitude of factors of things like, um, what was it, Batman Forever doing horrible. They took the wrong lessons. They thought because it was bright and built for toys and stuff is why it was awful, not because it was an awful movie. <laughs> Which I love, actually. It's a guilty pleasure movie, but it's one of those, like, I love and I know how horrible it is. Because I love the Schwarzenegger ice puns. Uh, I'm going right. to be inflicting a new guilty pleasure movie on uh, these folks here. In uh, It's an old one called My Science Project. It's uh, Dennis Hopper at his best. Oh, nice. I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah, yeah. He he briefly showed it to me recently, and I was like, I'm a pretty big Dennis Hopper fan. I mean, like, I've got the Dennis Hopper movie where he did Cthulhu, you know, uh, it's like uh, Cast a Deadly Spell or Witch Hunt, one of those two. And um, yeah, I forget which one's which, but they both sit on my shelf. And the um, it was like an HBO-only movie with him in it. And uh, <laughs> it's like a fantastic. There's this great scene with this uh, – this piano player and then like early special effects where it's like a guy who morphs into a woman while he's playing piano or she's playing piano. It's fantastic. Nice. But the, um, it's a very new Orleans noir, but yeah, no, the Dustin showed me this one briefly and I'm like, there's a Dennis Hopper movie that I have never even seen. And it's a, like a <laughs> nerd movie. Like how did this, what? Right, well, it, it was a Disney touchstone movie that got buried. Wow. By, uh, when uh, Touchstone was finally dying, and they didn't promote it, they didn't do anything with it. But it's a classic boy finds alien tech story and blows up his high school. It's fantastic. With Dustin Hopper, I need to see this. Yes, with I, the, yes, oh it's, it's it's one of those that has flown so far and under the radar. And I'm like, guys, I used to watch this with, all the time on my VHS. You haven't seen this? That is great. I need to. Yeah, I'm gonna need to find that. Yeah. No, and I it's got Fisher that. Stevens Go being the best Fisher Stevens ever. That's how that, that's how this came up. So I denied <laughs> vehemently that Fisher Stevens was the guy in Short Circuit. Oh yeah, he is. I was like, no, that's an actual yeah, Indian no, name. That's not Fisher I Stevens. A, I, I had a full-on robot chubby. Right, and and so yeah, this didn't come up until he got criticized for for playing brownface or whatever um, by like Aziz Ansari went after him. And I was like, that was Fisher Stevens? I had, young <laughs> me had no idea that that was Fisher. I mean, even if you look, I, I pulled up like photo versus photo for Dustin. I'm like, this is what Fisher Stevens' faces looks like. This is what the guy's face looks like in, in, in uh, Short Circuit. The, there is no way. Not the same dude. Not looking like side-by-side photos. Like not the same hair, not the same face, nothing. And uh, yeah, I was very disappointed. Yeah, same dude. Same dude. <laughs> the oh last one I got to bring in because now we're talking Hollywood films. I ran across somebody who didn't know what Legend was, like Tom oh Cruise pre getting his teeth kind of fixed, and um, Mia Sarah and Tim Curry as like and Tim Curry oh. being the most Tim Curry, right? I Actually, mean, no, I'll take that back. Home Alone Two is Tim Curry being the most Tim Curry, but this is a close second. Uh, Tim Curry in a TV show called Earth Two. He was the most Tim Curry. True. I forgot he was in that. 
Wow. I think Tim Curry's the most Tim Curry in pretty much anything he's in, right? Everything. We have to add him to the list. Like We have this list of, you know, several of our game masters over the years have run, everybody is Bruce Willis, since you pick yeah. Bruce Willis characters. Everybody is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Everybody is Jason Statham. Everybody is Tim Curry would kind of be amazing. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Everybody's Tim Curry. Oh, my God. That game has to happen now. Oh, but you'd have to, like, pick the best. I mean, Rock- Frank Furter would obviously go in. Oh, yeah. Right. Legend would go in. Well, Pennywise. Well, the original Clue. Pennywise. Oh, you got to have the butler from Clue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was okay. going to say, Miss the butler from Clue has to be there. This game is great. This needs, this needs to happen. Carl, Carl, <laughs> Kiesler, listening out there, start making minis because... We want an everybody is Tim Curry game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the League of Fantastic Gentlemen. Yes. Yes. No, it's Tim Curried, and they have to go save an Indian restaurant. There we go. Which which is <laughs> being run by Fisher Stevens posing as a real legit <laughs> Southern Indian dude. Oh god, that's horrible. <laughs> wow. Oh god. Yeah. Has to happen now. Tim Curried. That that is classic. That's gold right there. Right, and you just name them all like red, red curry, white curry, orange curry, depending green on curry. So yeah, green curry, exactly. Yes, yeah, we got this covered. Oh my god, this is so fantastic. And they're like the Power Rangers. They each have a color, and then they they can form oh the god. super curry at the end. No, is, and no, that'd be Pennywise all from, curries, from and when they form together, they become Tim Curry. Yes, yes. <laughs> so which one's coconut curry? <laughs> Probably Pennywise because it's white because he did he was the original Pennywise in the yeah. original it. Yeah, this is so fantastic. Yeah, I'm trying to think what the Butler from Clue would be. Oh, because he needs to be there. Black and white curry. What is? Yeah, <laughs> ebony and ivory Kirby. Uh, yeah, curry. Yeah, well, he's wearing curry. a nice little tuxedo, right? So I would. Yeah, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some I, I, mystery curry once per show. I need to I need to lose my my nerd card. I've never seen Clue. Oh man, it's pretty good. It, uh, it's great. It. Watch it on streaming because it'll give you all the endings, which is the best way to watch it. it we we got a special edition Blu-ray because that's one of my wife's guilty pleasures. She actually back in the day went to the three different theaters to see the three different endings and made a weekend of it. Oh hot damn! She, that's why I married her. She's that kind of nerd. Yeah. To be fair, there are endings that are better than others, and you would only know if you saw them all. So. I don't think I think my nerd card. I don't think I've seen all the endings. Oh, I'll show them to you. They're good. Yeah, yeah. Howard Hessman as an FBI agent's classic. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, like, oh, straight yeah. up. That was that was a good ending for me. All right, no spoilers. Mind, no spoilers on a what wife. a thirty year old movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so look at the world building we've done on this show. I mean, like we've just, we've created something here, people. This is special. Yeah. Damn it! Now I'm going to be messaging you on Facebook if I figured out the curries. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I've got one for yellow curry because Frankenfur- Frankenfurter's hot curry. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Clue is mystery eat. curry. Yeah. Legends red, red curry. curry. Yeah. It is white curry. Try to think what yellow curry would be. Oh. Oh, it could be a deep pull, because I do believe it could be Boogeyman from Ghostbusters the Animated Series. Wow. Oh, bold choice. 
Yes. And, and I'm, try, I'm still trying to think of like what his, his capes were when he was in The Worst Witch. But there's there's totally a Technicolor scene in there where it's like totally yeah. like like early 80s green screen um, fantastic awfulness. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember what, you know, Technicolor. But, oh, yes. No, no, no. It's all, all fantastic. Yeah, no. We're going to have you on again to talk deep dive on like movie <laughs> theory and, and gaming. Oh, that's fine. I can do movies tied to gaming all day. I can do the three act versus the five act structure into adventure design. I can. Oh, yes. I'm interested in that one. Yes. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's get that, <laughs> let's get that going. Uh, cause I'll sit here and take, I'll take, I'll take notes on that one. Yeah. I've actually meant to do a video on it cause I did like an article on it years ago. Well, when you, when you produce the video, we will plug the video. So come on back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. See, we're doing it. We're doing. We're starting it with SWAT. I mean, the, the the funny thing about SWAT is we're having whole chapters on film theory, just because you know, if you listen to sounds like crows, those guys use the cinematography terms. Shout out to the Crow Boys. Right. Uh, we got to meet them recently yeah. at the con, and they use it to great effect about you know crane shots and dolly shots and pull shots and, and zoom ins and the um and just using that language of film really makes that a a uh, fantastic theater of the mind um, experience listening to their podcast. So Isaac and Caleb, they're going to write for us a chapter, at least for the book on using cinematography terms at the game table. Nice. And we're having the art done yeah, right now. I do the same thing. Right. And it's just like one of those things where it's like, if we give you a little primer and show you what the, the film pans and zooms and tilts look like, and you start using this, you make your games more cinematic with a big C, not just the way we always use cinematic as being action packed and whatever. It's like, no, we yeah. can actually use the language of film and uh there's there's a youtube um channel called cinefx that i look at and they did a thing like that they bet the five best of this type of shot the five best of this type nice. of shot it's fascinating oh yeah it's one of those interesting things so again i majored film minor english i wanted to be a screenwriter and the whole thing about that is when you write a script you're trying to the best of your ability paint the picture for the director to then translate it to film and as a DM or a GM, you're trying to paint the picture for all your players to see the movie. So it's the exact same skill set. Right. And and the funny thing is, like, like, bringing back in Tolkien for the last point, the dude did not have brevity down at all. Like, he could talk about he the trees for five pages, right? You cannot do that at the game table. You will put your players to sleep. You need a certain amount of punch and brevity to allow them to tell their story back to you as a GM. And that's where I think the value comes in on bringing the the screenwriting skill set to the table because screenwriting and those scripts, they are super punchy. I mean, they're, you don't get a yeah. five-paragraph direction. You get one or two sentences at most, and you need to evoke mood and tone and meaning with one or two sentences. Well, yeah, it's actually one of those funny things because in the industry you're taught, you're not writing the finished product. As a screenwriter, you're writing something that's already going to be designed to be adapted. So your goal is to make things as clear as possible to also give enough room for the director to actually have a job to do. Because if you spell things out too much, the director's just going to ignore all of it because they want to do their thing anyways. So you got to reach this middle ground. And it weirdly has created the exact same situation of like when you describe a scene, you shouldn't do so in more than one sentence. 
And that's perfect for It's going to be storyboarded anyway because they got to figure out yeah. their locations and figure out the, how to get the logistics of that because what was in the screenplay doesn't always translate to, oh, we can actually go to that place to film what we need to. We need to do something different. Yeah, the, 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 the director has all those other logistics to worry about. And you can't add them in at, at that pro, at that point of the process yet. When the players start interacting with it, they change the logistics and the direction of what's going on. They they went to location two instead of location one. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Okay. Well, not just that. One thing I love is you do it for the same reason, or you do the same thing for the exact opposite reason in role playing of in a script, you keep things tight and punchy because you don't know what the final budget will be, what their location finally will be. You need to put the things in the scene that need to be there and nothing more because then the set dressers and stuff get to choose what's in there based on budget and all of this. As a GM, you put just the things you know need to be there, but you also don't get too precise so that when players come up with cool ideas of what can be there, they don't feel inhibited. You do the exact same thing because players have infinite that you would do in a script because of finite resources. Yeah, Jib from uh, Happy Jackson, he's also been on the GM's podcast, always says, this is one of his big things, he says, I know what's going to happen in my game up until the time the players sit down at the table. And then whatever happens, happens, because the players are going to change it. And, you know, always thinking about that, kind of that's kind of what we're saying is just that, you know, you may yeah. know what it's going to be, but once somebody else gets their hands on it, it can completely and totally change. No, I love it. The um, so I love the fact that we like we've already gone. I don't know when I get like, two hours almost, and the uh, yeah, we're two already hours. have at least a four hour additional conversation that we that, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> the uh, so let's wrap up this, this one here, but we're gonna have you on again because these yeah. these are great. These are oh definitely to talk about. They will, oh yeah. yeah. So next time with Bobby from uh, the GM's table, we'll have uh, yeah. screenwriting to uh, tabletop writing. The uh, we'll talk about three X structure and five X structure yeah. and the the denouement and uh, the denouement. All, right. I had to learn how to spell that at and one point. Genre and the assets of stage improv at your table. And... Oh, I love it. Perfect. <laughs> right. So yeah, stay tuned, people, because it might not only come out for another month or two. But the um, we'll definitely yeah. have Bobby back on. But the uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. No, I'd love to. Last thing, the shout out every every place people can find you that can throw money at you. Yeah. Uh, the gmtable.com will redirect you right to our YouTube page. So that's easy enough. And patreon.com slash gmtable will get you to our Patreon. It's also linked all over our YouTube if you want to help support the what's now multiple shows and growing. But more than anything, check out the YouTube. See if there's anything you like. Check it out. Subscribe. Look at that. We're 50 ish subscribers from hitting that 1000 mark so wow oh, nice. that'll be big so we'll actually have you back when you hit that we'll congratulate yeah. you on 1000 and talk about film <laughs> well given our numbers i don't think you'll have the time because that'll probably be in two to three weeks we average about 80 subscribers a month excellent so. <laughs> well we will definitely still celebrate you on that next time we're on, on the show yeah appreciate it bobby thanks for All joining right. us yeah, yeah. Thanks so thanks much. guys 
Yeah, and uh, everyone out there, uh, Savages, thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, give us an email at uproar at savagecast.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. We don't do a lot on Twitter, but we're there. You can uh, get our show, subscribe on iTunes, go there, leave us a review, let us know what you think of the show. Uh, don't forget Savage Cruise 2020 coming up at the end of January, January 26th. Uh, Savages are going to take over the Caribbean and Carnival Cruise Lines. You can get more information on that. Go to the Savage Cast Facebook page and you'll see uh, a link there that'll get you the, to the Facebook page for the cruise. Uh, I'd love to see as many savages as we can to get on that cruise and uh maybe larping some uh, war of the dead so again thanks for listening to savage cast episode 32 i'm the savage mommy and i'm dustin hatchet and on behalf of our guest bobby evans this has been the savage bowl later savages <laughs> <laughs>